Hi, welcome to another Classical Uncovered podcast presented by the Melbourne Recital Centre. My name's Graham Abbott. One of my mantras about classical music is so much music, so little time. I write about, talk about and perform music all the time and yet I never feel as if I've done anything other than just scratch the surface of this incredible form of human expression. Go into any art gallery and imagine studying every single painting and sculpture in detail, and then imagine the contents of all the art galleries in the world, and you'll have an idea of what classical music is like. Even with the famous and familiar names in classical music, there's so much more to explore than a few familiar pieces, quite apart from countless lesser-known composers whose music is heard much less often. In the last few podcasts in this series, I've asked the question, what's so great about, with relation to four big-name composers in the classical music world, Beethoven, Bach, Brahms and Schubert. This time we turn the spotlight on to one of the most revered names in the musical world, Mozart. If ever a composer could be said to have had a superpower, Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, who was born in 1756, certainly fits the bill. For a start, he was a child prodigy, playing the keyboard well at the age of four and rapidly developing into a first-rate virtuoso and composing by the age of six. It was also from the age of six that his regular travels across Europe began. These were undertaken under the leadership of his father, Leopold, an internationally respected violinist and pedagogue. Also on these tours was Mozart's highly gifted older sister, Maria Anna, known as Nanel, who might very well have had a career similar to that of her brother, but for her gender. These travels covered Europe from Rome to London, and they were long and arduous, sometimes lasting years at a time. The children were shown off to nobility and royalty in the hope of financial reward and, for the boy, some form of solid employment, but there was little of either on offer. What they did provide for the boy was an unparalleled first-hand exposure to the music of Europe the styles then in vogue, the industry and politics behind opera and concert performance, and the leading composers of the day, from whom the Wunderkind Mozart could glean important influences and ideas. By the time he was a teenager, no longer marketable as a boy wonder, Mozart was employed by the Archbishop's Court in Salzburg, where his father also worked. Stultifying and repressive this environment may have been, But by his early teens, Mozart was already a master composer and a skilled pianist and violinist. The music produced by this amazing teenager was brilliant, poised and imaginative. Any composer in Europe of any age would have been proud to have produced such works. But the final decade of Mozart's tragically short life, ending shortly before his 36th birthday, saw him develop into one of the most sublime and wonderful creators of music who has ever lived. He transcended and moved beyond the creativity of any of his contemporaries, producing musical art which rightly has been compared to the work of Michelangelo or Shakespeare. In the time we have here, I want to try to explain why this is, because that's what makes Mozart great to me. 
For a start, Mozart not only wrote in virtually every genre of art music there was in the late 18th century, he also excelled in every genre. Mozart wrote solo piano music, songs, vocal ensembles, chamber music, serenades, symphonies, concertos, church music, both vocal and instrumental, oratorios, concert arias, ballet music, dance music, and operas. In two of these fields, the piano concerto and opera, he excelled in ways which almost defy description and set the bar higher than any of his contemporaries. Oddly enough, and this is often the case with a creative artist who moves beyond the familiar, Mozart was often criticised during his lifetime for writing music that was too rich. That is, too full of detail and innovation, too full of melody, almost too clever. Where another composer of the time might base some movement on two or three main themes, Mozart might use six or seven or more. His seemingly endless ability to develop his themes in brilliant and unexpected ways makes him stand apart from other composers of the late 18th century. And over and above all this, there is an innate sense of drama in Mozart's music, especially in the works written in his final decade. This ability makes his mature operas each a unique masterpiece, as we might expect. But this sense of drama is present in his purely instrumental works, too. In the late piano concertos especially, the piano takes the place of the singer in an opera, expressing, in purely musical means, some sort of dramatic interplay with the orchestra which is powerful and engaging. Other composers wrote concertos to show off a soloist. Mozart's concertos plunge us into an emotional vortex as powerful and as intriguing as any operatic scene. Another aspect of Mozart's greatness to me is the fact that he was one of the first composers to attempt to live and work as a freelancer and not as the employee of a church or court. After leaving the Salzburg court and basing himself in Vienna in 1781, Mozart lived on the edge sometimes making good money, sometimes not. He almost always wrote on commission. There's little evidence of the man simply writing when hit by inspiration or for his own pleasure. Composing was a job and it had to pay. He also taught extensively and had a large number of students, mostly women, it seems, to whom he taught the piano. There were also occasional performance fees, but all this was very hit and miss in a world where there was not yet developed a regular culture of public concert giving. The downturn in the Austrian economy in the late 1780s hit Mozart and everyone else in Vienna very hard. His noble supporters and pupils either left town or just kept their heads down until the crisis passed, and there was little concert activity. This meant that for a couple of years, Mozart, who had a wife and family to support, suffered huge financial pressures and had to beg friends for loans. The tragedy which lay ahead in 1791, though, was shattering. The economy picked up, as did musical activity, and Mozart's future looked bright. And in that year, he wrote some of his most sublime masterpieces. Yet, in the November, he suddenly became seriously ill, and he died in early December, aged just 35. 
Most popular histories of Mozart focus on the boy prodigy and the tragic end of his life, and some Mozart works will always be popular. But the Kirschel catalogue of his music, those K numbers you see in the titles of Mozart pieces, runs to 626 works. It's a staggering achievement for someone who not only died so young, but who lived an artistic life which broke the mould, as a freelance rather than as a liveried employee. And as with the other composers in this series, Mozart didn't churn out trash. All his music, even the lighter pieces such as his dances written for the imperial court balls, is worth exploring. The only really bad piece he wrote, the musical joke K522, sends up bad composers and was intended to be bad. Part of the problem for us listening to Mozart in the 21st century is the music we've heard which Mozart never did. We've heard Beethoven and Wagner and Stravinsky and Philip Glass and the Beatles and ABBA. We've heard sounds which can at times make Mozart seem tame, even dull to our ears. We can't possibly hope to hear Mozart with 18th century ears, but just as we can marvel at da Vinci's Mona Lisa and not expect it to be like Van Gogh's Starry Night, so we should be able to give Mozart the time his music demands and listen to it almost forensically to hear the countless little miracles which are going on beneath the elegant, polished, affable surface. I could take a dozen approaches to this to explain it here. Mozart's music really is that rich. But let's focus on just one, his use of wind instruments. Mozart's early orchestral works, the early symphonies in particular, date from his childhood and teens. By the time he was a teenager, Mozart's sense of musical balance and form, his sense of timing, in other words, was almost flawless. He brought in melodies and developed them and moved on to others in a way which is so natural that we can easily not notice it at all. But in his use of the actual instruments of the orchestra, his relegation of the wind instruments as subservient to the strings was typical of most composers of the day. The winds, flutes, oboes and bassoons, supported the strings but never rivaled them. They may have occasional solo lines which emerge from the string texture, but by and large their function is to add colour to the strings and not to be an equal body of instruments to the strings. In his later works, and by this I mean principally the works of his last decade, written between his mid-twenties and his mid-thirties, Mozart changed this approach radically. He clearly saw the winds as tools in his expressive arsenal, and he was always looking for ways to be more expressive. Freeing the winds from being a mere amplification of the strings to being an instrumental group of equal importance to the strings develops gradually through Mozart's music. We see it starting in the little interjections of the oboes and horns in the third movement of his Symphony No. 29, K201, which dates from 1774 when he was just 18 but full equality with the strings comes later. In the final four symphonies especially, numbers 38 to 41, dating from the mid-1780s, we see time and time again the melodic interest being shared between the winds and the strings. 
And while the winds often fulfil their traditional supporting role, the days of being perpetually in the shadow of the strings are long gone. Yet even the symphonies are not the best examples of Mozart's liberation of the winds. He went much, much further in this respect in the late piano concertos and operas. Symphonies were, as often as not, impressive calling cards in Mozart's day. They had to make a splash. For this reason, delicate interplay of instrumental colours often gave way to the need for power, even in slow movements. But in the concertos and operas, where there was virtually always a soloist, be it instrumental or vocal, the textures were often lighter, allowing for more soloistic orchestral writing, which usually meant the winds. The traditional numbering of Mozart's piano concertos lists 27 such works. The first three or four are arrangements of solo keyboard works by other composers, written when Mozart was 11. But he soon started writing his own concertos. And after establishing himself in Vienna in 1781, piano concertos poured from his pen, both for his own use and for the use of his students. In his final decade, he wrote 17 piano concertos, and most of these are stunning examples not only of Mozart's brilliant writing for the piano, but also of the way in which he regularly brought the winds to centre stage in his musical textures. One of the most glorious examples is the E-flat concerto, number 22, K482. Right from the first page, the winds, including the horns, have prominent lines while the strings are silent or discreetly accompany. And once the soloist enters, there's regular interplay between the winds and the piano. To our ears, this might not seem remarkable. But for the 1780s, it heralded an entirely new way of writing for the orchestra. Part of this was fueled by Mozart's deep engagement with the newest addition to the woodwind family, the clarinet. The virtuoso clarinetist Anton Stadler met Mozart probably about the time he moved to Vienna. And it was for Stadler that Mozart wrote some of his finest music, the clarinet trio, the clarinet quintet and the clarinet concerto, as well as many prominent solos in the late operas and Masonic music. As clarinets became more widely available, Mozart eagerly included them in his orchestral works, occasionally replacing the oboes. The E-flat piano concerto I just mentioned is an important example of this. By the time he came to write his final operas, Mozart's wind section was settled as an ensemble of eight players. Pairs of flutes, oboes, clarinets, and bassoons. The two horns were regarded as an essential component of Mozart's wind writing, too, as they often provide cohesion and support for the other players, while occasionally even getting solo moments of their own. To my mind, the pinnacle of Mozart's wind writing comes in the three operas in which he collaborated with the imperial court poet Lorenzo da Ponte. The Marriage of Figaro, 1786, Don Giovanni, 1787, and Così Fantutte, 1790. Mozart's instinct for drama and good dramatic timing means that his operas outshine virtually all others of the period, despite the fine works composed by people such as Antonio Salieri and Vicente Martin y Soler, both of whom also collaborated with da Ponte in Vienna.
In moments of poignant emotion, Mozart often brought the winds to the fore, weaving delicate yet never obtrusive traceries around the voice part. In Figaro, this is evident in both of the Countess's great set-piece arias in Act Two and Act Three, and in Figaro's anguished tirade against unfaithful women in the fourth act. Susanna's sublime Act Four aria is perhaps the most perfect use of winds in the entire piece. If anything, the use of winds is even greater and more powerful in Don Giovanni, although here the writing is more integrated into the texture and used often for its sheer beauty. Zerlina's Vedrai Carino in Act Two is one of my favourite Mozart moments in any of his works, such as the glorious beauty of the wind writing against the voice. And I could go on and on. As I said earlier, focusing on Mozart's beautiful writing for the winds is just one aspect of his greatness, but it's one which is often overlooked. I could just as easily have discussed his brilliant use of harmony or the endlessly inventive ways he developed and manipulated his themes. He was an extraordinary man, and any of the works I've mentioned here would serve as wonderful introductions to his art. My thanks to Duncan Yardley for the technical production of Classical Uncovered. My name's Graham Abbott. Happy listening. <laughs>